Jonathan Rose is the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of History at Drew University and a giant in the book history field of study. Welcome back to the Bibliophile. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nigel. Now, this isn't a giant-sized book we're talking about today, uh, Reader's Liberation. It's a lovely, succinct book that attempts to create a broad narrative history of reading with a central theme that uh, reading can and has been the most fundamental expression of human freedom. And that's apparent when you examine reading as it is experienced by the reader. So how is it experienced by the reader? Well, that's the whole su the subject of the history of reading, which is a field I've worked in most of my career. And uh, I've worked with a lot of other, uh, I think, yeah, pioneering researchers in it. And what I wanted to do in this volume is basically sum it all up, pull it all together, see what, what kind of a, a overall narrative have, has emerged from it. You know, we have a narrative in Western civ forces, for example, and now that we have this new field of history, I wanted to see what kind of overall conclusions have emerged from it all. And, and yes, one, one clear trend, is it, it appears in all human societies, uh, all historical periods, is that uh, reading is an emancipating force. Readers are very independent in their reading. They draw their own conclusions from reading. Uh, Roger Chartier calls it appropriation, and that's basically what I'm talking about here. In other words, you, 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 you use books to serve your own purposes as a reader. And uh, this, uh, it, it, this prevails in both uh, democratic and totalitarian societies, especially totalitarian societies. Okay, so how is human freedom related to your own interests then? Well, my teaching field is intellectual history, history of great books and so on. And uh, yes, I think that this is essential to human freedom, uh, a knowledge of the great books, the great ideas, the questions that, that thinkers have atta attacked throughout the centuries is the essence of being a free individual. That's the meaning of the term liberal education. Uh, that idea, I think, is very much under attack now from all quarters. Yeah. We see uh, enrollments in humanities dropping everywhere. We see retired humanities professors just not being replaced. It's all business and, and STEM and so on. So in a sense, I was pushing back at this. I didn't really quite understand the connection, though, between fr human freedom and the freedom just to go and read whatever you want to read. And how is that connected to the great works? Many people don't want to read the great works. That's true, and many people, unfortunately, don't really want freedom. It, it brings with responsibilities. It brings with it um, inevitable descent from the herd, from, from, the, from the mass, and that some people find very uncomfortable. I get the sense that this, this generation tends to be more conformist than, say, the generation I was a part of. In fact, you say that they want, they want more administration. They want more guidance. More, more paternalism. Yeah. Uh, more of a, a sort of a, a part of a top-down organization. I mean, I was yeah, a 60s kid. And I edited my school newspaper, my high school newspaper, and we had to fight the uh, the principal over censorship. We could not, for example, cover uh, Vietnam War demonstrations. And I was no flaming radical. I want to emphasize that. I, I, in fact, I wasn't even entirely in sympathy with the with the, the uh, peace activists 
But I did recognize this is an important story, and it should be reported. And, you know, to watch that, we, we could do that. So I think, that, and polls show this, uh, people of that generation, I'm sorry, we're, you know, boomers, whatever, yeah, do feel much more committed to the idea of free expression than uh, the current generation. Okay, and free expression is at the core of many of the messages that the great works deliver? Not all the great writers are in favor of free expression, by no means. That's not, but the point is, if you read a wide selection of great authors, you inevitably get a variety of perspectives. Right. And inherently, uh, it, builds your, it builds up your intellectual muscles. It allows you to, to, to think independently, because now you have all these alternatives in front of you, different ways of thinking, different ways of viewing the world. Right. Because I guess it, in terms of the field of book history, is looking at the reader is perhaps coming a bit late to the game. And prior to the current interest, perhaps there was more of an idea that you once you've written something, well, that's how it's received. It's, it's yes. you write it, and then but you don't worry about how, how it's received, even though the reception is as varied as the number of readers that are actually reading it. Of course, of course. And uh, yes, it's certainly true if you're a book historian, you want to study how the book was authored, you know, who are the authors, what's their socioeconomic background, uh, how it made it to publication, uh, how it, it, it was, uh, you know, who bought it, which library stocked it. But in the end, no book can have any impact upon history unless somebody reads it. Okay. Yeah. And the impact it will have depends to a large extent on how the particular reader interprets it, which may be very different from the intentions of the author. So as a cultural historian, I think that reading is all important because uh, that's going to tell us what the actual influence of a particular book is going to be. Well, the other thing, too, is that a certain number of readers have to be riled up enough to actually do something for, for history to change. True. In the same way. Yeah, it, it all starts with, uh, but all, it, they have to be you know, motivated through. It all starts with the reader. You know, I've just taught my, my Western city, of course, so I start, I start with 1789, the French Revolution. I end in 1989, the fall of communism, another revolution. And we always ask students, what causes revolutions? Why do they happen? What are the under, under, underlying motivations? And of course it's complicated. But one of the points I make again and again is what I call leaky censorship, i.e. there is censorship, but it's full of holes. Uh, illegal books, so on, can make it to the yeah. readers, and of course they are devoured because they're forbidden fruit. And that was certainly true of Voltaire and Rousseau yeah. uh, in pre-revolutionary France, true of, of Solzhenitsyn and Andrei Sakharov in, you know, in uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, and that starts... The questioning of the system, which eventually leads to its overthrow. Well, in fact, Darnton focuses on this, the book smugglers to quite an Very extent. Much so. Yeah, there's this fantastic uh, 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 resource, uh, uh, the French Book Trade in the Age of Enlightenment. It's a it's a web resource. You can find, Google it, you'll find it. And uh, this is about his uh, uh, famous uh, Société Typographique de Neuchâtel, which is a Swiss-based publisher that smuggled books into. Pre-revolutionary France, and the sales records have survived. Yeah. So uh, 
you can then type in, uh, say, Voltaire, and get a sense of where all his books were being sold to in in Europe. Or Rousseau, if you do Pythag and Rousseau, <laughs> they're reading him in, in, in Versailles. Right, you know, right. Right under the king's nose, so <laughs> Well, you actually say that every revolution begins with liberated reading. Now, it, does, does, it has to go beyond that, but that's the starting point. Yeah, okay. Tell me about the Lollard movement. You could say this was the uh, uh, the first time uh, that reading really sparked revolution, which is to say the Protestant Reformation, which was a revolution. I mean, a, a reformation is a misnomer because it really it was more radical than that. And it's all about making the Bible accessible in everyday English. It started in the late uh, 1300s and was underground for about 150 years. Then finally, Henry VIII agrees to publish the Bible in English legally, but it circulated under, uh, Ill, uh, illegally before then. I do speculate that the wife of Bath in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales was a Lollard. Chaucer doesn't say that because if he did, he'd get, you know, he, he would have been in very serious trouble. But she knows her Bible. She's able to quote it back to clerics, yeah. which is very unusual for a woman at that time. Uh, and obviously she puts her own very raunchy spin on the Bible. Right. Needless to say, certainly many readers at the time read the Canterbury Tales as a kind of proto-Protestant text. Uh, we know from the annotations and the, 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 uh, the ownership records that a number of those readers were women, perhaps as many as 20% were, were female. So it is a force both for religious freedom and also to some extent women's emancipation. Now this is interesting. You say that the viewpoint that was widely taking hold among readers of the later Middle Ages was this, that the individual has both the ability and the duty to engage texts analytically and to question or doubt those opinions that may turn out to be dangerous or false. That doesn't strike me as middle-aged thinking. Well, that may not fit our stereotype of the Middle Ages. You may view it as a period of, of, of darkness. and That was certainly the caricature that the men of the Enlightenment portrayed it as. Yeah. But once we start looking at the experience of individual readers, we suddenly find they are thinking very independently. They are reading independently. This includes a number of women, by the way, like Christine Pizan, you know, French woman. Yeah. Uh, whose bit of reading is, yeah. is very, uh, you know, uh, very independent. So, in a sense, the Reformation was inevitable. Uh, once people started reading more and more texts you know, on, on their own, they would start to challenge you know, uh, scriptural authority. That being said, when England becomes Protestant, and then the Catholics are the persecuted, minority, yeah. and they can't practice their religion openly, they turn more and more to the Bible and to individual books for spiritual sustenance, and they become the independent readers. Well, I love this line. You talk about uh, the Bible being full of literary dynamite because it's got so many contradictions in it. There sure. are, sorry, there are, uh, in the text itself, there are few ideas whose support of biblical texts can't be found. Yeah, so, you can read it as a uh, 
uh, a revolutionary text. There were some women uh, in England, you know, again, going back to about 1500, who are reading the story of King Solomon, you know, being challenged by, by these uh, 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 poor women. And she's saying, well, if these women can speak to a king, I can do it too. Right. You can read the Bible as a sex manual, for that matter. I mean, some parts of it are pretty raunchy. Because, again, yes, it has no unambiguous meaning. It can be, it can, it can support any kind of political well, and isn't that just the very the very essence of looking at texts and the role of education is to help students to interpret and understand what they read and to argue for their understanding. Right. Yes. Yes. I think we don't do enough of that, frankly, in higher education. I think uh, students are getting less reading. Yeah. Uh, their attention span is shortening to a considerable extent. We tend to see less debate on campuses. I mean... Certainly when I went to college, uh, we always had uh, full sessions about everything. Yeah. Uh, you always had controversial speakers coming to campus. Now we tend to disinvite those controversial speakers, which I think is a, is a, is a very retrograde movement. And yeah, I was, I was writing, again, uh, to, to challenge that as well. You suggest that private reading bred a new sense of personal autonomy and a new consciousness of the self. Yes. So, what? Readers, they were interested in reading freely what they wanted to read, and this yeah. this gave them this new sense? What? Because they learned new ideas that they didn't realize were true in the past? Certainly, sure, sure they, they, they're still often exposed to, to new ideas, or they can read old, old familiar books and put their own spin on it. Even in Nazi Germany, we have many readers who went into what was called, they called internal exile, which to say they attempted they shut out, you know, what the, the propaganda from the regime, and they they took refuge in books, a surprising number of which were available. For example, uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World was available at, in, in in Germany, and of course Nazi Germany, uh, and of course uh, many readers drew, you know, they could see the parallels operating there. Needless to say. So in that sense, uh, I mean, as, as, as one person who studied the, the uh, Nazi Germany uh, said, it, it wasn't Fahrenheit 451. In fact, people could keep books in their private libraries in spite of the book burnings. That didn't stop the Nazis, though. It didn't, no. And, and you might say that people resorted to this reading because that was the only thing they could do. It's escapism. Escapism, or do you want to put it that way, or preserving their sanity. It's another way of looking at it. But if there is no alternative to, uh, there is no, you, you, you can't challenge the system, then all you can do is to take refuge in books. You also, this is, you know, we're moving through the ages here. Here's uh, Moncain talking about the new order of consumer sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And he says, or wrote, I have read in Livy a hundred things that another man has not read in him. Exactly. Well, by the Elizabethan period, certainly Elizabethan England, you had a large reading public, and of course a theater-going public as well, and the watchword for uh, playwrights was, as one of them put it, as you like it. They have to now appeal not just to an aristocratic or royal patron, they have to appeal to a mass audience. And I, as I put it once in my history classes, the Shakespeare's primary priority was butts and seats. 
Yeah. You don't have that. You know, you're, you're, you're finished with the playwright, and that was his primary concern. Uh, and there's uh, another wildly funny play by Beaumont Fletcher, The Night of the Burning Castle, which is contemporary with Shakespeare. And what happens is, well, you know, the play starts, and the you know, actor comes out and says, you know, welcome to the board of the king. And somebody gets up in the audience and says, no, stop the play, stop the play. I, I, I'm tired of all these, these, these plays about kings and princes. Just for once, I like a play about a grocer. <laughs> and he's a grocer, and so he gets his his, uh, his apprentice up there, and he plays the knight of the burning pestle, about a knight who really isn't a knight. He is in fact a uh, 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 a grocer, but he has all kinds of marvelous adventures. Now, first of all, this plot is a steal, obviously from Don Quixote, which had been published a, a, a few years earlier. But yeah. also, it shows the audience is in control. They have hijacked the play. They're going to decide what's going to be on on, on stage. Uh, they're going to choose the actor, and uh, yeah, it's a whole new uh, 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 a whole new dispensation, which many writers weren't entirely comfortable with, but they had to deal with it. Right. Well, this is interesting too. Uh, around 1700, you've got Lord Shaftesbury suggesting that social yeah. stability would be ensured by encouraging criticism examinations, judgments, literate labors, and inquiries by asserting the reader's privilege above the author. How does that that ensure stability? Well, it can in a reasonably, maybe not democratic, but shall we say parliamentary society. In other words, if everyone feels that they can engage in public debate and contribute to it, uh, that will be a prophylactic against revolution. Revolutions happen when people feel that they, they, the books they want to read are, are not available, they're censored, or that they can't have any influence over, over the system. Right. And after 700, England never has a revolution. Or to give another example, Robert Darton did a very interesting study about this. British surveillance of the Indian press in you know, colonial India, 19th century. The British authorities literally had read or had their... Indian clerks read every book published in India, and they, it was entered into a ledger, and there was the author, the price, the title, and a little like mini review of it. And obviously, they're doing it to keep tabs on the Indians, get an early warning if there's any unrest there. For the most part, they allow the Indian press to function freely, and that too was a it was a safety valve. It uh, uh, enabled the British to see trouble coming in advance and then headed off. So in that sense, a relatively free press was actually a means of stabilizing the system and uh, uh, and heading off potential revolution. Well, here's a, a country that did experience a revolution, yours, and this is John Adams saying that the preservation of the means of knowledge among the lowest ranks is of more importance to the public than all the property of all the rich men in the country. Okay, and what starts the chain of events that leads to the American Revolution, which you've all learned in high school history, it's the Stamp Act. The, the British thought they, they, they charged stamps, taxes on their own newspapers, which is true, so why not charge a, a, a tax on American newspapers? Yeah. Well, the answer is, of course, that they, in doing so, the British authorities were attacking the media, yeah. and all these printers went, went ballistic. Access to knowledge, papers, yeah. Most papers in the, in the country... Uh, become uh, uh, firmly opposed to the British rule, 
and that sets in motion the events that lead to the Declaration of Independence, and also lead a little further on to the First Amendment, which becomes a, a, a cornerstone of American democracy. And it's certainly true, we probably have the firmest guarantees of free speech to any country in the world. Okay, There is no First Amendment in Britain, there's none in France, yeah. and, it, and therefore the government, there's none really in, in Canada, and therefore uh, the government can to a greater extent, intervene in the, uh, in the in the in the media, the public sphere, and and, and by public expression. You make uh, the observation that the the U.S. Constitution is actually uh, capable of multiple readings. True, which is why we have a Supreme Court because <laughs> they eventually have to agree on some kind of a reading on it, and and they they supposedly have the uh, the last word. But the First Amendment tends to be pretty unambiguous about it. And uh, uh, that has, uh, over the years, become a bedrock principle of American government. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, for many years after the First Amendment was enacted, uh, it wasn't always followed. Look at the Alien Sedition Acts, which in fact did bring in government censorship. But, but from one president to another, it has become strengthened and applied to the, to the individual states and so on. So that wraps up chapter one, which you had entitled uh, Wrestling with the Author, and now we get to Student Power and John Erskine's uh, Great Books program, which he didn't really want to be necessarily followed as a rigid canon, but he wanted it to be there as a basis for common conversation. Ivy League school to basically go beyond its, you know, the, the, the WASP students, the ones who come from the, uh, the prep schools and admit the sons of immigrants they yeah. have there in New York City. So the question is, what kind of common culture are they going to have? And Erskine hits upon, as you know, does the idea, well, let's have a, a core course of great books. You're right, he didn't intend it to remain the same from year to year. Yeah. You could change it. But it was to be in English. You were not going to read Herodotus in the original Greek, which takes like a year. You're going to read it in, in a translation, which is what you can do in one week. Okay, You're right. It becomes a a common cultural heritage, which binds this very diverse group of students together. One of these young students is Mortimer Adler, a young, very argumentative uh, a Jewish kid who is, thinks he's smarter than all of the philosophers at Columbia. And he, of course, eventually sets up the great books of the Western world program uh, and becomes a great evangelist for this uh, for this cause. So I feel, even though if they've been, you know, this, this great books curriculum has been criticized, not enough women, not enough people of color, whatever, uh, and you can certainly criticize it. When it was begun, it represented a huge step in the direction of democracy and diversity. Diversity because what? Because they're all white and they're all men. Yeah, but uh, it is Divers also being adopted at Barnard, which of course is a women's college. Right. And the students there are, 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 are very enthusiastic about it. When uh, the great books groups were being set up in Washington, D.C., right after the Second World War, 10% of the uh, members of these great books discussion groups that Morton Rather was involved in were black. Perhaps the first time your white and black people sort of sat together at a common table in Washington, which at that mm. time originally segregated city. And Mortimer Adler, you know, he, he got again a lot of flack for not including uh, black authors. You can criticize him for that. But separately, he in 1968 he published a pioneering anthology 
of African American literature right. to supplement it. So he clearly was interested in that. He clearly viewed the great books as a force for racial equality. Well, I think he also encouraged autonomous thinking, and he would encourage argument in favor of adding black writers to the canon if if the argument was strong enough. Right, right. Although, to be honest, he never did. I mean, there's a second edition that came out in the 1990s, and there were no black authors in it, and that created a huge, a huge lot of protest. We today actually have more colleges than ever that uh, have great books, core curricula, and they've modified the contents over time. They've added a more diverse uh, array of authors. We can disagree over exactly which authors to include, but the, the important point is you want students to engage in a common conversation about a common group of texts. Yep. Yeah. The other, well, another thing that they were pushing was uh, was the function of the critic as communicating personal uh, fascinations. Yeah. Well, uh, it was certainly an attitude taken by critics like H.L. Mencken, or, or for that matter, another great popular educator, Hugh Hefner. Yeah. Some Playboy clubs were given uh, uh, tuition. You know, uh, their college tuition was subsidized. That was an employee benefit. Uh, he very much believed in this kind of self-improvement of, of the mind. So wait a minute. Uh, As part of the pay for his bunnies, he paid yeah. for them to go to school. Exactly. Exactly. A Playboy was, the most, I mean, it, it's the most literate early magazine you could possibly imagine. It published works like uh, Ernest Hemingway. It published uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. But the, uh, the larger point is that Hefner's approach to literature was, this is what appeals to me. This is why it appeals to me. And this is how it affects uh, your living, how you live today, too. Yes, exactly. And I think H.L. Mencken, a generation earlier, took the same attitude as a critic. And after Hefner, another great popular educator, uh, Oprah Winfrey, took yeah. the same attitude. She didn't say, I, when she, her book club, I'm not reading the great books. I'm reading books that appeal to me. And if it appeals to you, great. Okay, we, then we can have, we can have a, a conversation and, you know, uh, scored a huge popular success. Yeah. One of the takeaways of this book, uh, Reader's Liberation, for me was uh, how important it is for Oprah and uh, for teachers to be passionate about what they teach. Right. And allowing them to choose what they teach so that they can convey that passion. Yes. Or, even more important, allowing the students to find their own passion. In other words, rather than impose upon them a certain critical formula, whether it is new criticism, whether it is deconstruction, whether it is queer theory, or anything like, like that, ask the student, how does this book speak to you? And try to elicit that. I think as pedagogy, that is going to be far more effective than following certain theoretical formulas. And I think it's a direction which literary studies should move. Yeah, I'm not sure if they're your points or, or uh, someone else's, but you, you set down three recommendations. Uh, one of them was to allow the teachers to teach what they're passionate about. Another yeah. one was to provide students with uh, time just to go to the library and pick what they want to pick and read it. Well, that, it was actually my, it was my proposal, my criticism of Common Core, which I think has been yeah. an absolute disaster for American education, precisely because uh, I've looked at Common Core textbooks. They are tiny bits of literature. Yeah. So you can tell your parents, the principal can tell the parents, 
we're studying we're studying Mark Twain, we're studying Louise May Alcott, in fact, all they've got is a few paragraphs of each and so on. And it uh, it's all teaching to the test, which I think is, is absolutely fatal. This is what I would how I would teach literature on the high school level. Again, let the teachers pick the books they want to teach. Some will pick old classics, some will pick sort of modern ethnic literature. Eventually everything will get covered. But the important thing is they're teaching what they really feel passionate about. Uh, secondly, give the students paperback copies of these books. Yes, that's right. I love that one. Let them, let them keep it. Yes. It wouldn't be that expensive. It'd be, it'd be cheaper than buying these enormous you know, textbooks produced by... Pearson. Yeah, in fact, you criticize the whole enterprise as being a commercial enterprise. Well, exactly. Exactly. So let them read these books, mark them up, keep them in their library. 20 years from now, they'll pick them again off the shelf and remember how much they liked them in high school. Yeah. That's important. And thirdly, rather than hiring a lot of reading technicians and experts and so on, just set aside an hour where every student goes to the library, pick a book, sit there, and read. Whatever they want, but they have, but they have to sit there. They can't look through a screen. They have to actually read a book. That include a comic book? Comic book allowed? What? Comic book allowed? Uh, it's probably stretching it a bit. No, real book. Real book. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I think that will do more to create... A uh, people who love books over a lifetime, which is after all the objective of what their ed education should be. You introduced me to someone I'd never heard of before, but she she really sounds like a hero to me. Her name is Louise Rosenblatt. Yes. Now she was at Barnard College when Columbia was adopting its great books curriculum. Here's this young young Jewish woman who is uh, you know pioneering the way into, into higher education, and she is very taken by this. And the reason it is she, she, she adopts it is because we're, she says even in the 1920s, this is what we're talking about, 1920s, we have the balkanization of the university campus. Everybody's withdrawing into their own discipline, their own department. Everyone's pursuing their own specialty. Yeah. You've got little political factions that are pursuing their own ideologies. And there isn't a, com a common culture that's bringing us all together. This is what literary education should do. It should break down the walls of specialization, break down the walls of ideology, break down the walls of ethnicity, and bring everybody together in the classroom to discuss these books together. And she was the one who really pioneered the idea that rather than follow, uh, again, uh, theoretical formalism in teaching literature, the teacher should allow the student to discover these books for themselves and discover what's, what's important in these books for themselves. I like this so much I'm going to read it out. It's a couple paragraphs, okay? Sure. Starting on page 43. Students come to college, acquire knowledge in various fields, and keep the types of information isolated in separate compartments of the mind without ever correlating them or realizing their interrelationships. That might not bother anyone who conceived of college as a place where experts are trained for the punctiliously accurate administration of our complex industrial machinery, but Rosenblatt saw that such an education would never prepare students to question the system. And this is her here. It is not enough that the college student be made an effective part of the machine, an eliminator of friction in the industrial world. He should be able to comprehend the machine in its entirety, 
to understand the significance of his relationship to other men and all, above all, to enjoy and appreciate all that our culture may offer. The College of Liberal Arts should develop people who can live more fully and with greater intensity of appreciation than if they had not been members of a college for four years. Yes, and I deliberately wrote that ad because I see colleges going in that dangerous direction now, ever more so. Narrow specialization, serving the machine, which in our case happens to be a computer, Okay. Yeah. Uh, emphasis on tech as at the expense of the humanities. And technical education, no, does not lead you to question the system. It leads you to do things by, by the book. Uh, it leads you to look narrowly at your own, at these, you know, uh, technical problems. And you certainly don't call, pose larger philosophical or ethical questions about what you're doing. And that, I think, in the long run is very dangerous because you get a rather obedient, tunnel-visioned generation, yes. So, yeah, in effect, you're stunting the, the individuality and the curiosity of the, of the reader. This is a bit of a jump, but it, do authoritarian regimes <laughs> want their uh, students not to do history and literature because they become more unruly when they do? Well, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Now, in Soviet Russia, uh, there was enormous emphasis upon the great Russian authors. They devoted much more time to studying literature in high school than we do here in the United States. Now, of course, they did it out of tons of Russian patriotism. We have all these great writers, which, of course, they do, uh, and, and we should regard them worshipfully. But I would say that eventually it led to the collapse of the system because you can't read all those writers without, in a sense, questioning what is going on. Uh, obviously, writers like, like, uh, like Turgenev and Tolstoy and Gogol were deeply critical of the Tsarist system, but it's no great mental leap to realize that many of their criticisms will also apply to the communist system as well. Just to return to Playboy for a second here, you say that it played an in, in indispensable role opening up the canon. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at the authors they published and the authors that they, um, they interviewed, uh, the famous interviews. These, these, they were they were very innovative, and they were the ones who were really challenging the system. Uh, there were lots of gay writers like Jean uh, Genet and Truman Capote and Gore Vidal and so on. Uh, there were black writers like James Baldwin, uh, uh, Malcolm X. They interviewed him as well. So I think in that sense, they were uh, and they were they were influencing the college generation. And then when that college generation then went to teach later on in the colleges, they brought with them that uh, uh, more expansive canon, shall we say. I think that really opened up the way to more, shall we say, inclusive literary studies of the uh, uh, 1970s, 1980s. The next chapter is uh, entitled uh, 
and we won't go through every single one, Jonathan, so don't... Uh, I'm not... Okay, yeah. <laughs> Up from the middle brow, and this was interesting, in the early 20th century, uh, some research has shown that there were like 500 Shakespeare clubs in the U.S.? Yes, yes, and a surprising large number were run by women, and they were off in you know, frontier towns, industrial cities. These women didn't yet have access to higher education. They basically educated themselves, and yeah. they did it through the vehicle of Shakespeare. They would stage his productions. They would have symposiums. They would even do scholarship on him. They did everything that today you know, is done on college campuses, except they did it on their own. There were no deans. There was no, there was no prescribed curriculum. You know, it, it was, it was a, a kind of do-it-yourself, do-it-yourself culture. Yeah. So yes, uh, this was flourishing. It was similar to the Chautauqua movement, which was, of course, yeah. also an adult education kind of a program. Speaking of women, you make the observation that, or you've discovered a research, as your research has uncovered the fact that, what, 30% of Playboy's readers were women? Actually, 38%. Wow. That's in 1960. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, that's my next book, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain why that why that happened. And I'm looking at their at their letters to the editor and so on, and their memoirs to see yeah. why they would have been with them. A number of reasons. They love the jokes. They love the cartoons. The Kinsey Report, which of course had come out just recently, found one of the things that uh, women now like dirty jokes. Uh, that had, that had not been the case before, and they become they become more acceptable. Yeah. So obviously, the Playboy appeal on that level. It was a uh, I think they used it as a force for you know sexual emancipation. Uh, and Hefner wrote these long, long articles on the Playboy philosophy, which are sort of like you know, Methodist sermons, except they're for sin, as if not against it. But he was uh, uh, very insistent, we have to do away with double standard. Uh, we have to understand women's sexuality. We have to give, give, give them a, a forum to discuss their, uh, their experiences. And Playboy, more than any other periodical of the time, was reader-written. I mean, the, lead, the letters the editor columns were just went on for pages and pages and pages, hmm. and of course, a lot of the a lot of the writers for it were women, uh, discussing their sexual experiences, discussing their their, uh, their their priorities. There was no other mass circulation magazine where they could do that. The mainstream women's magazines, like McCall's and, and Ladies Home Journal, really didn't deal with sex as, as such. Uh, they're much more repressive about that. So if you wanted, if a woman wanted a magazine that wasn't about kids, wasn't about child rearing, wasn't about cooking you know, or cleaning, that had a lot of intellectual stimulation, that talked frankly about sex, it was only Playboy. So sure, it made perfect sense for women who actually consider themselves to be uh, in the vanguard of emancipation. <laughs> yeah, such, such an odd paradox there. Grace Metallius, who was the author of, uh, of Peyton Place, which of course was a fairly, you know, a novel that broke boundaries. She loved Playboy and wrote, wrote letters effusively praising the magazine. Now, this is early part of the 20th century. The, the Book of the Month yeah. Club. The Book of the Month Club had about 750,000 members. And one of the key players there was, uh, I interviewed the uh, uh, Anne Fadiman last year, she'd written a memoir about her father, Clifton Fadiman. I'm particularly fond of Clifton because he's responsible for me getting into reading the great works. I picked up his lifetime reading plan when I after university, and I went and you know did it on my own. He would have been a professor at Columbia, 
but they had already filled their, quote, Jewish quota with professors, so they wouldn't let him in, and they wouldn't let him teach there. But when you think of it, he had a huge amount of influence over readers with the, with the Book of the Month Club. Well, I think a lot, a lot of uh, professors got really tired of the whole academic game and decided to address an audience, a more popular audience, greater influence that way. And the Book of the Month Club, yeah, we, we, we sort of disparage as being very middle-brow and so on. In most of America at that time, the 1930s, 1920s, there were no bookstores. They existed in the big cities, of course, but in the small towns, you didn't have them. So this, yeah. this was a conduit through which people could get, could get the books they couldn't otherwise get. And sometimes the Book of the Month Club published some pretty edgy writers, like... Richard Wright's State of Sun. He had to censor it a little bit, but but it, it was there. Both yeah, race and sex could be addressed and could reach and could reach Middle America in a yeah. package that would, wouldn't frighten them away. Yeah. What I like uh, too, you mentioned Arnold uh, Bennett as being a sort of precursor. Uh, <laughs> and there's someone someone likes Arnold Bennett in the background there. It seems, or maybe she doesn't. Maybe she doesn't like him. <laughs> I got her there in the background. Um, but what's interesting about Oprah uh, and her huge influence is that it didn't necessarily mean people started buying bore books. It meant they started buying better books, more complex, more challenging, right? Right, yes. And that's just, I think, she had a very positive uh, influence. It's true she was appealing to not so much to people who didn't read books, but to people who already were reading them. But because she introduced them to a broader range of books, they read books of at least better quality. Classics actually are not a good moneymaker for publishers because, first of all, they're out of copyright. Uh, so the profit margins are kind of small. And secondly, it takes a long time to read them. Yeah, uh, It's not like a, like a romance novel which you can get through very quickly. So uh, there's not a lot of turnover there. She did promote it reading of those in more classic literature, yes. The way around it for publishers, though, is to put new introductions in and get new translations done. Yes. In a number of cases, Anna Karenina, I think, was one uh, that yeah. she... Another chapter is entitled Dreamers of the Ghetto, where you talk about the drive to literacy in black America and how, how powerful that's been. intellectual life of the British working classes dealt with that, their reading. Yeah. And it occurred to me, what if we did the same thing for African-American readers? And again, mainly working class. It's just a chapter, it's a sort of a, a overview of the subject, subject but uh, and sort of points, I hope, forward to further research. But yes, I mean, there was this enormous drive toward, toward literacy, precisely because they had been deprived of that un under slavery. Yeah. And the, the more slaves than we, we imagine somehow contrived to teach themselves to read. Yeah. Uh, and then once, once slavery is ended, there is a great increase in literacy, in part the Freedmen's Bureaus, yes, but for the most part it is self-help efforts by black churches, by black communities to, to, to create this, uh, this uh, literate class. So I also ask the question, well, what in fact are they reading? Uh, and there was this fascinating uh, uh, study, a young uh, librarian did this in 1943 in a Louisville public housing project, all black, all working class. And she basically did an inventory of every single book on everybody's shelves. And the most popular book, it turned out, the most popular novel, are you all sitting down, by the way, was Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Which stunned her and stunned me. 
my explanation to the extent that we can we can explain it was I mean, let's face it it is a it's a very readable novel it was a bestseller it does have a number of very vivid black characters if you say well aren't there a lot of stereotypes well yes but all books had those kinds of stereotypes at the time and you know uh, uh, black readers like Ralph Ellison said look you you have to you have to put that aside and read beyond beyond the stereotypes and try to get at what's valuable in these, in these books. So I think black readers read it on that level, insofar as we can we can determine that. To what level? The, what level? That it was a well, an, well, an interesting it, it, story about an interesting time for blacks. Yeah, a fascinating time. I mean, these, these they may have been well the grandchildren of slaves. Their grandparents may have talked about this era. Yeah, they may have remembered the Civil War. Right. And you know, yeah, you'd like to find out what what yeah what it was all uh, what it was all about. Right. Uh, and as long as you discount for the prejudices, it can be a, a document of social history. You know, right. Uh, we found that they, there was some reader readership of black literature, but surprisingly little. Uh, for the most part, uh, they were reading the same books that that white middle class readers were reading. They read uh, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. They were reading uh, middle, middle Brow Fiction. They were reading uh, uh, Sinclair Lewis. They were reading Victorian poets. Given that this was a working class readership, I think that they were pursuing the same kind of self-improvement that my British working class readers were yeah. pursuing yeah. through the literature. Well, they wanted to get ahead. That'd be part well, of it. I mean, in a sense, they were. They're probably their parents had been sharecroppers. Their grandparents had been slaves. Yeah. So they were up with the mobile. And I think again, this is that social strata that that Oprah also appeals to with her with her gospel of self improvement. You mentioned the in terms of the middle brow. You mentioned the GI Bill, and uh, and the the fact that brought in you know the better educated mass population and the fact that they demanded more more than the middle brow something more challenging and that saw the publication of some some really uh, again sort of challenge like uh, the lonely crowd for example and silent spring too you spend a bit of time on that as well right right uh, uh, a bit later on the middle middle brow literature appealed to an audience that had achieved secondary education yeah not yet achieved higher education so we're talking about the generation of the 20s and 30s and 40s for the most part what what middle brow did is it took ideas from the highbrows of course and sort of represented them in a more accessible fashion to right. a mass audience jamie harker who has written a book called middle brow queer which is about middle brow novels about homosexuality for example what christopher isherwood certainly wrote a number of them yeah. And uh, The Lost Weekend, you remember you made, you know, the film with Ray Milan, the original novel, about an alcoholic, the original novel explains he's an alcoholic because he's gay and he's repressed. He's yes. That. Yeah, they took that out of the movie though, right? Didn't make it into the movie. Uh, but here's my, but the point is, these middle-brow novels, which are criticized as being very conventional, in fact, were really challenging readers, were, uh, I think, set in motion this particular case, what would only be the gay liberation movement, by, again, sending these sympathetic characters to middle America in terms that would not frighten them away, and therefore, thus made them more more, more familiar and more tolerant. Yeah. So in this sense, I think uh, middle-brow literature performed a very useful social function. It just seems to me with your uh, uh, discussion of, of, of Oprah 
and of Hugh Hefner, in fact. Yes. You talk about Hefner uh, uh, producing and editing the kind of magazine that he wanted to read. And, right. And Oprah, you know, exhibiting real passion for what she had chosen. It seems to me that that is such an important factor in, uh, in the whole publishing world is to find people who are passionate about the books that uh, they read and then they spread the word and that's what turn, turns books into bestsellers. I think so and one other advantage that Hefner and Oprah both had is that they were both their own bosses. They were, they were innovative entrepreneurs who were in control of their particular products and they could do what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, most of our media is now controlled by you know the huge conglomerates, you know uh, uh, corporate people, and they're afraid to take risks in the same way that uh, uh, Hefner and Oprah are willing to take. I love the way Oprah took the, a risk in her most recent book about the uh, uh, Mexican um, coming um, into the United States. Right, right. Which which was subject to uh, a lot of attacks. I have not read it, so I can't really judge it. No, me neither. Um, but it can only help. It can only help. Uh, people will read that book because of the controversy, not just because Oprah's picked it. Right. And I don't I, I don't blame her for publishing controversial books. No, right? no. You, you know, if you feel if you feel the novel is flawed, and of course many people have made a case for that, you, know, you don't have to read it. If you really want to determine if it's flawed, you pretty well have to read it yourself. Exactly. And I think I would rather have publishers take risks on books, even if they are, many of them are failures, yeah. or got a lot of heat, uh, rather than play it cautiously. You, you spend a chapter on Shakespeare in prisons? Sort of re relevant right now, because we're sort of all in prison, aren't we? Yeah, under, under, <laughs> under, under the lockdown. Uh, and it's not much to do except to read. Yeah. Yes, it's certainly uh, uh, in prison, there are basically only three things that prisoners are allowed to do. Uh, they're allowed to uh, uh, go to chapel, they're allowed to go to the weight room, yeah. and they're allowed to go to the library. So either they, they find they find religion, or they become bodybuilders, or they become brilliant Shakespeare scholars. Some you know, college educators do teach courses in prison and say these are enormously appreciative students. And they yeah. do the reading, and they think for themselves, because that's the only kind of freedom they have. They read uh, uh, Shakespeare's Richard II, and of course there's that famous scene of Richard in prison, and they say, my God, Shakespeare must have done time, because he understands what it's like. That's right. Well, that's, a lot of people yeah. say that about Shakespeare, that he must have been whatever it might happen to be, because he has such a, right. uh, an impressive handle on, uh, on all sorts of vocations and types of personalities sure. and whatever, yeah. But yeah, why Shakespeare again? Though it's just well, obviously it's his what his knowledge of human nature or what? All, all of Shakespeare's plays are basically about people who are trying to achieve love or power, and maybe they succeed or they fail with terrible consequences. But at every point, they have to make moral choices. They face ethical forks in the road, they, have to, they can go one way or go the other. And that is what people in prison are always preoccupied with. Where did I go wrong? What, what were the wrong choices I made? 
what was tempting to me, and, and why did I do that? Yeah. And Shakespeare answers that, that question. Yeah. And, and sometimes these decisions lead to, to, to love and a triumph, sometimes they lead to catastrophe and death. Yeah, lots of blood on the stage. So I, I certainly think that college courses in prisons are a very effective means of rehabilitation. Yeah. And we should not skip on them. Then you get into the internet and the, your chapter is entitled On Not Believing What You Read. Right. And again, it seems to me that uh, analyzing a text and looking deeply at if things make sense or if you're being misled or why why the author is doing a certain thing, why certain people are acting in certain ways. Um, or just, again, looking carefully at, uh, at, what, logical arguments? Right. Well, I think a historian's reading always has to ask this question. Does the reader believe what he or she is reading? And if not, why not? And we can track credulity over time. Uh, in France, there was, a, there was a Royal Gazette before the Revolution, and of course, nobody believed it. There was a, a, a newspaper published outside of France, the Gazette de Led, published in Leiden in, 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 in Holland, and that was smuggled in. And of course, everybody believed that because it was, it was an underground paper. Now, I think in America, uh, if you look at the, uh, the Gallup poll, which every year asks people, do you believe, trust the media? Yeah. In the late 70s, after Woodward and Bernstein, very high levels of trust. And yes. ever since then, it has steadily gone downhill. It did not go downhill because of Donald Trump. If anything, I would say that Donald Trump won an election because he played on an already pre-existing distrust of the mass media. And one of the reasons for this distrust, and you, again, spend another chapter on the whole public relations profession, and the fact that corporations basically yeah. uh, pump, uh, they'll withhold advertising uh, if, uh, if the editorial isn't to their satisfaction. Right. Uh, the number of PR agents today far outnumbers the number of working journalists. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there are more people involved in manipulating the news than in reporting. Uh, of course, we've seen in recent years, the last 20 years, uh, newspaper staff have been cut to the bone. Yeah. Uh, the few remaining journalists who are still working are terribly overworked. If a press release is sent to them, they'll print it because it's just less work. Yeah. Involved. Yeah. But that, of course, that means that they're, they're simply, uh, and this, this is true not just local papers, but to a large extent of, uh, of big metropolitan Main Street papers as well. So, uh, you know, for a very good reason, I think readers increasingly dis distrust the media. In addition to the fact, yes, you have now an alternative. I mean, the Internet now made it possible I mean, uh, to, for anyone to publish. Uh, A.J. Liebling, the great media critic, once said that there's only freedom of the press for the person who owns the press. When I remember, everybody can own it, one way or another. Yeah, which is, again, double-edged sword. Very much so. And some people find it dangerously democratic, a bit too democratic. Yeah. There's no question that there are a lot of you know, conspiracy theories and so on. Yeah. But let's remember... And lies. Woodward and lies. Woodward and Bernstein were conspiracy theorists. 
they had this theory that, that Richard Nixon was behind the conspiracy to break into Watergate. Yeah. And they did the investigation and they, they proved uh, uh, they, they proved that there was a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. Not all conspiracies are just theories. And all investigative journalists start out, you might say, suspecting a conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, the government is starting to lie to us. They're 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 doing favors for their cronies. Uh, they're putting their relatives in jobs. They're stood for the public till whatever. Uh, they're covering up uh, uh, malfeasance, or or they're pretending that uh, products are safe when they're not safe. Yeah. Whatever. But those are that's what investigative journalism should uh, should uncover. And so it's very it's very expensive. A lot of paranoia out there. Yeah. Uh, investigative journalism is terribly expensive because yeah. you got to spend months and months and months chasing the story. How long does right. one person work on it? It's also susceptible to being uh, you know, shut down by a corporate or political interests putting pressure on the owners. Exactly. And bear in mind, most of the media in the United States is controlled by six big conglomerates. The, the family-owned newspapers, with a few exceptions, is becoming a thing of the past. Yeah, in fact, you talk about native advertising, uh, which basically is undermining the foundation of journalism, which is trust. And those deals with advertisers, which is basically advertisers putting stuff into papers that looks like editorial, but it's not, it's advertising. Uh, those deals will not save the media industry. They will, in a matter of years, destroy it. Yes, this advertisement is made to look like editorial matter, which actually is illegal in, in the United States. There was a progressive reform in 1912 that made that made that illegal. But you can skate very close to the edge of legality. You can say, well, it, you, there could be a little notice saying it's 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 uh, it's advertising content. Yeah. I hope the reader won't notice that, uh, but readers do notice. You say that the first rule of PR is don't let on that it's PR. So I think that that, had, although it does increase revenue for the newspapers and magazines because advertisers will pay a premium for native advertising, nevertheless it undermines their credibility. And in the long run, I think, has been, has been disastrous. It really has, and again, you finish off that chapter in a, with a really uh, striking uh, couple of sentences. If they solicit native advertising, have they any right to complain about fake news? Well, exactly. If you don't have credibility, then you're finished, basically, as a news source. Now, what has happened in the United States, of course, is that, really developed after I finished writing the book, a highly polarized media, which many of which is, you know, obviously hostile to, uh, to President Trump, and uh, certainly there's a lot of room for criticizing him. But the problem is that it becomes very predictable and it, it's, it's one narrative that's repeated over and over again. There may be lots of things going wrong with the, with the Trump administration, but it's, it's difficult to know because we're not sure we can trust the media. We're not sure if they're not exaggerating. We're not sure if they're not, you know, yeah. uh, spitting in, in, in a given way. And it all becomes very partisan. Back in the in the 19th century, there, there was no idea of objectivity in journalism. No, uh, there were Republican papers, there were Democratic papers, very partisan press, either Republican or Democratic. It made no bones about the bias, no concept of objectivity. I don't think we're better for that. 
some extent, I very much miss the old sort of Huntley Brinkley uh, approach to the news, which was much more dispassionate. Uh, I also miss the uh, the kind of open debate that took place on say, by liberal hosts like David Susskind on television, or William F. Buckley, of course, conservative host on television, where they would actually talk to their opponents. They would engage in a kind, in a kind of gentlemanly exchange of ideas. And now you have these cable news loudmouths sort of calling each other idiots, and, and that does not do a lot for public discourse. No, it's coming from the top, too. He, Trump's calling everyone idiots and disgraceful. Right. I, I, and... I, uh, I, I think that's simply not the way public discourse should be conducted. One thing that's troubling, though, of course, is that because of Trump, the media are making a ton of money. Uh, as I say, it's a bit of a dichotomy because I'm sure a lot of Americans want him out of there, but he's very good for generating audiences for uh, television uh, channels, and, and the media isn't a social service. They are enterprises, and they're doing very well, right. thank you very much, because of Trump. Right. On both sides of the political divide, that's true. And a lot of uh, the mainstream media have uh, obviously taken an anti-Trump position, and they're able to develop an audience by constantly reiterating that. But the dangers of that is you are then the prisoner of a highly polarized political Stance. Not too long ago, this was driven home to the New York Times. They ran a, a story of debate with, on the front page, and it had a headline like Trump denounces racism, and so, which in fact Trump had done. But since it, uh, it implied that uh, Trump was you know, not a racist, their readers rose up in revolt, uh, and some threatened to cancel their subscriptions, and the Times editors were very apologetic about it. Now, if you follow the canons of objective journalism, Yes, they're just reporting what, what, what Trump said, but that is no longer considered to be sufficient. And I think many, uh, at least the older editors of the Times, really feel that whatever their feelings about Trump, and I'm sure none of them like him, uh, nevertheless, that a viable journalistic ethic is being lost in yeah. this highly, highly uh, polarized atmosphere. So how does this relate to the reader then? who are, they demand that their prejudice be served all the time and, and will only read you know, one, one, one point of view. Uh, there were other uh, magazines and newspapers that uh, took some pride in presenting what we call forum journalism. In other words, you present a whole variety of viewpoints. It goes back as far as uh, Benjamin Franklin in the colonial times when he said his news, look, I'm opening up my newspaper to different points of view uh, in the community. And to some extent, this protected him from censorship because if he published something that the authorities didn't like, this is in the colonial period, he always say, well, look, I'm not, I'm not endorsing this point of view. No. I'm simply, it's simply a reflection of public opinion. Uh, another good, good exemplar of that is actually, again, Playboy, which prided itself on bringing in all kinds of you know, bomb throwers and radicals. They interviewed Malcolm X, of course, and, and Alex Haley was the, uh, the who later wrote the autobiography. They wrote Roots, right, was the interviewer there. Yeah. And then a few months later, they had sent Alex Haley to interview George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the head of the American Nazi Party. And it was kind of funny because uh, you know, Rockwell had never heard of Haley and was a little suspicious when he called on the phone. And he said, <laughs> Haley, 
are you Jewish? And Haley said, well, well, no. And, and then, so he allowed him, of course, when Haley showed up, Rockwell was very much put out. But here's the point. Was Hefner endorsing black separatism or fascism? Of course not. What he said was, I think my readers are intelligent. They can decide for themselves whether these guys have anything worthwhile to say. Uh, we will give them every possible point of view. And uh, we're not going to give them the kind of, in that in the 50s and 60s, the bland, the road consensus. Okay. And that was to a lot, that's, that appealed to many of his readers, both male and female. Uh, I think today people re follow the media to, to read what they want to hear, much more so than in the past. So you're saying that th this is a reflection somehow of our times, which is people are more partisan, and why are they more partisan yeah. then now? Why aren't they looking for well, more objectivity? That's an, an awfully big question. One reason certainly is that I think that the cultural culture wars, political battles over the last couple of decades have really driven the country into two very, very different camps. If you follow the the, you know, the old Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960, what strikes you is they basically agreed on everything. Kennedy just looked better. Well, certainly that was part of it. But if people are too far apart in their politics or their, or their culture, then they can, no, they can no longer communicate, and civilized debate breaks down. Uh, I think in the, uh, you, in the 50s, you had this you know, idea of consensus, and everything was very middle of the road. And to some extent, the 60s were a reaction against that, uh, a willingness to entertain more radical ideas. But now I think we've gone to the opposite extreme. And, and that itself is uh, committing the opposite error of falling into two camps, just yelling and screaming at each other. I'm reminded of a book that uh, Neil Postman wrote about bridging the, the gap between today and the, and I think it was the 18th century and the uh, sort of capacity for citizens to uh, engage and listen to lengthy political debates, but hearing out the other side. Right. That, I think, has come largely to an end. Is that why you're writing this book, partly? Is that... In part, in part. I mean, in part, yes. I, I, this was a, a protest against this development. I wanted to argue that in history, we have had, you know, this hasn't always been the case. We have had times when people could read very long polemics, could listen to long debates, could talk to each other. Yeah. You know, David Susskind's program was called Open End because there was no time limit on it. They could actually go beyond the uh, the hour if they if they had oh, a it's, conversation. It's like a podcast. Well, exactly. Except you know, the, uh, it reached a much could reach a much larger audience because mm -hmm. it was a network show. Uh, I, I just just. Uh, trying to liberate free people show what, what Lord Acton called the tyranny of the present. Things have not always been this way. Things could be different. We could read books in a different spirit. We could redesign our education so that there is more reading and more independent reading. Yeah. All that was done before, it can be done again. Right, and I suppose more willingness to listen to arguments, rational arguments from a variety of different viewpoints. Because if you only, experiments on this, if you only talk to people you agree with, that group tends to become more and more radical. They, 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 they get pushed further and further out to the extreme. If yeah. you have more of a conversation, then uh, you're drawn more toward the center. Well, they tend to become more violent, too. Yes, exactly. Just 
it finally, your final chapter is called Death to Gradgrind. It really is a, a largely about this cancel culture. Yeah, and here's one quote from it. As of 2014, 76.4% of American college teachers can be fired at will if they teach something that offends the left, the right, the university administration, or their students. And then you give this example of at Columbia University, there were complaints that Ovid's metamorphosis prompted a cavalier attitude towards sexual assault, and it was dropped. Right. I think that we have seen in the university a movement move for adjunct teaching. You know, people who are not, do not have tenure, and of course they have no academic freedom whatsoever. They can be fired at will. If they're cheaper to employ. Uh, they cannot provide the same level of attention to students, and of course they don't enjoy the same intellectual independence. During the McCarthy era, yes, there were about 100 professors one way or another who were fired for left-wing opinions, supposed communist sympathies, or whatever, and that was a terrible interval. But we, that may be happening more often now to young instructors of, of various political persuasions, simply because they don't have the protection of tenure. And so they avoid, they avoid anything controversial. Yes, and that's one, that's one way of, uh, of getting around it. And if you emphasize, again, STEM and tech and business, well, it's not controversial, is it? No, no, they're facts. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Here's a professor talking about the fact that he finds it damnably difficult to provoke our students into disagreeing with us or even offering an alternative reading of a set text. This is a Yale University literature professor, and you would think there that you'd have the brightest students that'd be the most willing to challenge uh, uh, them, and uh, no. Uh, I think they're intimidated by a number of factors. First of all, uh, the economy is not very good, and they're all worried about, about, about jobs. They're worried about pleasing their, their employers. They've also been brought up in a whole culture where uh, their reading, one way or another, has been censored. In the high schools, it's mainly coming from the right, pressures on, on, on literature classes. In the colleges, I'd say, it comes mostly from the left. So they get used to the idea that censorship is a good thing. Yeah, it's normalized, uh, yeah. I think it's absolutely appalling that a few tech giants should be able to decide for us what we're going to see or not see on the internet. And yet, there are very few protests, at least within the media. They seem to accept this as, as this kind of censorship as a necessity. Facebook enjoys, they employ literally tens of thousands of peons who sit in front of the screens and, and, and censor them. It's an Orwellian kind of situation. So that was a protest against that as well. The point I was trying to make. Yeah, you say it beautifully here. If we have reached the point where students at a leading university are afraid to disagree about a point of literary interpretation, then in an essential sense, it has ceased to function as a university. That is probably the hardest thing I find with my own students, to get them to fight back against me, to, to disagree, to debate. Maybe you're just sounding too authoritative. Uh, they, they look for, to, for authoritative uh, uh, guidance, yes. 
Yeah, it's troubling. So, so what's, I mean, you've written this book, you're concerned about the quality of reading and the mindset that readers are, are in in this generation. What's the way ahead? Well, to some extent, I think reading is now moving out of the university into uh, online. It's uh, few students are taking fewer and fewer literature courses, but it doesn't mean they stop reading or adults have stopped reading. They have formed their own book groups. They have formed their own websites where they where they debate uh, authors, and maybe that is the way forward. Maybe it's better to, to, to uh, maybe it's better to have that kind of uh, independent critical judgment rather than deferring to literary critics who uh, are almost you know uh, you know no longer employed by newspapers today. No, uh, no. in the nineteenth century, literature was not taught. In the university, not not except for Greek and Latin, of course, they taught that. Books were discussed in the media. They were discussed in in magazines and newspapers. There was a whole class of met gentlemen called men of letters, who were basically the equivalent of today's uh, uh, literary critics. They they criticized books. They wrote literary histories. They wrote literary criticism. They did everything English professors do today. Um, and we're going back to that, and it wouldn't be such a bad thing because this this way, I think we can have real open discussion about what books mean to individual readers. That's positive. I tried, I tried to end on a positive note. <laughs> so you b really believe that that's happening? Uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's happening all over the world. And uh, uh, the number of book discussion groups is uh, online is, is proliferating. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sure, why not? Very good. Okay, well, if uh, listeners uh, haven't satiated their appetite for our type of discussion uh, and this reading, this type of reading, they can turn to what you've done with Edinburgh, correct? Yes, well, that's another, another, another project that's, about, that's just been published, actually, the Edinburgh History of Reading. Yeah, what? I edited it with Mary Hammond. And what does and that cover? It is, well, it's four volumes. It is uh, more than 60 essays, all original scholarship, basically discussing reading experiences in all historical periods, all cultures around the world, uh, from ancient China up to, uh, again, you know, uh, book blogs today. Uh, we deal with medieval readers, we deal with more modern readers, we deal with uh, the very ordinary readers in history. Uh, we deal with literate reading as a subversive influence so those people who read to challenge the existing order so yeah that's that that's a project that just 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 has been uh, appeared in print well uh, I'll just repeat the name of this book is readers liberation and Jonathan uh, thank you so much for a, a fascinating conversation and and for writing this book thanks thanks so much Nigel my pleasure very good. Jonathan is the William R. Kennan Professor of History at Drew University. Thanks again.